We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Early thoughts on FFPC redraft leagues. That's what we're going to be talking about this week on Stealing Bananas. That's right. We're going to go back to some of our theme weeks. For those of you who have been listening since episode one, you'll remember the last summer, basically from when we started right around this time on, we were doing sort of theme weeks where we talked kind of evergreen concepts, big picture strategy more in the first episode. We would do more player specific in the second episode of the week. And then we were doing three episodes. We'd have a guest on for the third. We don't have a guest lineup for this week, but we will before the end of August be bringing on some of our friends from around the football world. But today we're going to start with a look at the FFPC redraft landscape. Some of the slow drafts have started up. We've had some football guys contests going off, but the main events have started as well. We have 12 slow main events going. I'm in one of them with uh, Pat Crane and Pete Overzet, my ship chasing buddies. Um, and so we have quite a bit of data now about what the redraft landscape looks like. Sean, I think you mentioned we had, there's about 74 football guys contests have gone off in the last couple of weeks. So we're going to be looking at the, that ADP and the main event, a little bit of the differences if we're seeing any and talking some strategy. It's a, it's a fun time of year as we come out of, you know, mostly all best ball and we have to try to think through now what are some of the differences in, in redraft? What are some things that might create opportunity in this different format? And it is really exciting to know those drafts are starting to go off. You and I will do a number of drafts, perhaps both slow and live, definitely live a little bit later on in the off season. We've been fortunate enough to have our teams do fairly well together the last couple of years. And this year, obviously, we're trying to take down that new $1 million grand prize in the FFPC main event. And then once you're into main event season, I mean, fantasy football is almost upon us. So, I mean, did it ever really stop? <laughs> well, I was going to say, I've loved the best ball season and best ball. One of the things that listeners know, if they've been listening to Michael Dubner, you have this uh, sort of unequal approach where you want to have a lot of drafts early. You want to have a lot of drafts late. Obviously, we're going to be doing a lot of best ball content for August to help you win the big tournaments there. We're still looking at Dynasty, have plenty of those things going on. Just had a chance to finish a draft with Patrick Crane. It was a lot of fun. Have a draft going with Matt Jones that was incredibly different and yet very fun. So 
yeah, like you say, Ben, we're not giving up on those formats at all. We're not moving away from them, but we are also moving into now what, I mean, it just, it feels like fantasy. You know, you're going to have to set these lineups during the year. So you're thinking about, you know, what are the tactics within the draft that make sense for that? And in some ways that brings a little bit of the zero RB back even more for us, because we know that while zero running back has been shown to be very effective in best ball, there are some unique elements of pure redraft to where it can become even more powerful so many little things to go over here, but one of the things that we definitely see right from the beginning is that ADP is going to anchor in some ways to all of these best ball tournaments that have been going off and perhaps in ways that give you a tiny little bit of advantage as drafters fail to make the adjustments. At the same time, there are adjustments that that are being made. One of the things that we've talked about is wanting to get a lot of Saquon Barkley early because he's going to be more expensive late. You know, best ball formats where you could get him in early to mid round three that is sort of long gone if you were hoping to have any of that in a redraft he's going at the 204 as the running back eight we also know that as we move through these redraft leagues that you're going to have a difference in the way the quarterbacks are being played but you also have differences in formats one of the things that Anybody who's been listening to and reading Connor O'Driscoll recently, uh, I just want to give a plug to him. He's been doing such great work over at Rotoviz. You know that one of the interesting elements is the underdog and FFPC ADP doesn't exactly match the scoring systems. So there are some exploitable opportunities there. But the first thing that really jumps out to me, Ben, as we look at these early FFPC results, is that when you have two running backs, when you have two wide receivers, when you have two flex spots and Blair Andrews has the win the flex tool up and firing for you over there at Rotoviz, it's built with best ball in mind, but it has some huge and easy takeaways that you can then apply to redraft. There are a lot of running backs going early when you consider that this is essentially a two running back four wide receiver format. Well, it is, but we always talk about how with the two running backs, two receivers, two flexes, there are going to be those that view it differently, right? There are going to be those that view it as a full running back format, which is one of the really kind of fun ways to play. If you like to, or, or reasons to play at, at FFPC, all the different sides have their little quirks, but if you like to play similarly to how we do with the wide receiver depth early and you're viewing it as, as you just said, Sean, as a four wide receiver format, because of the win the flex tool, because of all the evidence that shows that typically wide receivers are the way to go in the flex spots, you're going to be potentially being able to reap some of the benefits from some people that are going to be more willing to take running backs early. They might take four in a row to start. And certainly the, you know, you understand the allure of that. If you hit on all four of those running backs, then you're probably going to still win the flex. The problem is anytime you take four running backs early, you're baking in compounding risk we've talked about this a ton and it becomes you know a little bit tough to see a scenario where you actually have all four of those running backs for the entirety of the season and then on top of that you're going to be fairly thin at the other positions as you can start working through you know you might still be able to hit an elite quarterback or something but at, at a certain point you're going to have to take your receivers and it is tough that can succeed but it is a tough path to to, to tread down but yeah, I mean, we look at this like right away, looking at the 
ADP from both the football guys and the main events. We have 18 running backs going in the first three rounds. A lot in round three that we may see a little bit later. Ezekiel Elliott is in late round three right now. James Connors in late round three. In some of the best ball leagues, he, Elliott's been rising, but had seen him in the sixth round at times this offseason. I don't really understand why he's now a late round, round three pick. He feels like the type of guy, though, that does start to creep up in these drafts, it can be a little bit more running back heavy at times. With that, because there are 18 running backs in the first three rounds in a tight end premium format where there's four tight ends going in the first three rounds, suddenly you only have 14 receivers going in the first three rounds. You have a lot better wide receiver options into the fourth. It looks a lot more like you know, we've talked this offseason how the fourth round hasn't been as wide receiver friendly in, in some of these best ball drafts as the fourth round has been perhaps in past seasons. And there is this opportunity to get some pretty interesting names in the fourth round of these FFPC redrafts into even the fifth round, into the sixth round. It really shakes things up to get those running backs up in the first three rounds where we, where we like them. Yeah, that's, that's where we like those running backs to be. It is. And it's interesting to see the contrast. You mentioned the 18 running backs, only 14 wide receivers in the first three rounds here. One dynamic that I discussed in relationship to the MFL 10 of death, a really cool best ball league run by Pat Thorman with a lot of the best and biggest names in the fantasy industry in there is that this year specifically, even much more than even last year, there was this jump and the running back dead zone was very, very, very well respected to the point where almost the only running backs kind of going in that range. I actually took a couple, which gives you a sense of how much of the shift happened. And then JJ took a couple, but didn't draft like his fourth running back until round 15. He took three in the first five and had that hyper fragile build. What are your thoughts here as we look at that element of hyper fragile versus say an anchor running back versus a zero running back start given what we're seeing as some of these trends now that trend after the third round does flip four five six and seven very very wider series heavy maybe still not quite as much as we might expect because a lot of the running backs in that range are just such pure dead zone guys but by the end of seven we're back to where we have 28 running backs off the board 35 wide receivers are gone it's also i think an interesting mix and in, at wide receiver between veterans and some of the younger guys if you want to kind of carve a path of young receivers through there you're a little bit more able to do that now than maybe you were a month ago in a different type of format also just to throw in quickly here ben we know that the qb changes a lot because in best ball we talk all the time about getting the two qbs in the window you're really targeting a couple guys between round six and round 10 if you want to go with an elite qb sometimes you reach if there's a flat area before that and you feel like you got a good value on someone that you're not going to have a lot of but you want to have a little bit of exposure in redraft you're going to be picking a guy and there is still some value and you and i have kind of debated this a little bit of you know if you get that great value on the second qb do you want to go ahead and take that because then you can essentially or in a way kind of stream two strong qbs against the best matchups obviously you've got some protection for health you have the high upside of playing who's ever the hottest or whoever has the best matchup in week 16 week 17 but big picture we know these quarterbacks are going to fall a long long way because if you splurge for a qb early that guy is going to be your starter 
And then if you wait, obviously you're doing a little bit more of a mix and match, but you've waited. So the QBs are going to really drop and that's going to give a little different look too. We're talking about round six through 10. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. I mean, the quarterbacks are definitely going later. Um, we see, you know, Lamar Jackson and Kyler Murray in the seventh round here. Kyler at the very end of the seventh. Um, Hurts and Burrow into the eighth. You see guys like Brady and Lance and, and Dak Prescott in the tenth. Russ being the, the guy going in between there in the ninth. You can definitely push it a little, a little further than you could in best ball season at the quarterback position. And understanding that is... Important because obviously as the quarterbacks fall, that means the wide receivers and the running backs are going to sort of dry up. Those tiers are going to dry up a little bit quicker. I I mean, we started by talking about how it is still pretty running back heavy through the first three rounds and what that means for wide receiver into round four, into round five. But by the round six or round seven, you can hit a window where it gets pretty thin at receiver. And, And this actually happened in my first main event with Pat and Pete right after Elijah Moore and Amon Ross St. Brown went off the board in the sixth round, we more or less weren't sure who to take. There's another interesting pocket later, and we felt like we were going to have to reach. We were looking at DeAndre Hopkins as a potential sort of luxury pick that we could set aside for six weeks. We we ended ended up actually going quarterback and getting Devonta Smith on the way back. I think Devonta Smith is one of these guys that is a little bit mispriced and is an interesting name because he had a pretty good rookie season, has a draft capital. I don't really understand why he's going so far behind like an Amon Ra and, a, and Elijah Moore. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk specific names a little bit more in the second episode. But, you know, we always do have to talk about them a little bit as we start to talk through these strategy things. There's a later pocket that includes some of the appealing rookies, the Traylon Burks, the, the Sky Moore, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave group. And, and so – Sort of navigating that in-between range, that six, seven, eight range, was tough in our first main event. There's not, it's not a, a range that I really want to be attacking tight end too much. I'm, I'm definitely in the camp, and I'm curious your thoughts, but I, I'm pretty sure you're with me that we want the elite tight end. And then some of those other names are appealing, and you want difference makers at tight end. But I think this year that, you know, tight end six to tight end 10 range, maybe not as appealing. I'm not sure where you're at on Hawkinson. I don't know if we've talked about him a ton yet, but he's in that range and he's a guy that we targeted a good amount on our mains last year. You have Dallas Goddard, you have Dalton Schultz, Zach Ertz and Dawson Knox, not a group that I'm as a group heavily targeting. And so I think it it, it is very natural and makes sense to be looking at the quarterback position there because you can still get an elite option, but there you know, there's that range where receivers can dry up and then we get back to the top and sort of, as I think through that, you know, as you were asking that six to 10 range, I'm thinking I want to be pretty receiver heavy before that point. Basically, I want to be making sure that I have the depth necessary early, which then necessarily drives me off of the early running backs. Maybe there's an anchor in there, but taking multiple running backs early is really going to thin out what you're able to do at receiver before that position thins out. Again, there is an interesting pocket later in rounds nine, rounds 10, round 11. You can get some of those. I, I mentioned the rookies, but there's the Rondell Moores in that range. There's some veterans that are that are interesting. I mean, Kenny Galladay is going you know, in a range where if that offense passes a lot more, this guy's not 
35. He's 28. He had a really poor season last year, but you could see some bounce back potential. Tyler Boyd, Jarvis Landry, guys that we're always, you know, sort of more willing to take than the field. So there are ways that you can play receivers still into that 9, 10, 11, 12 range. But as you start, sort of sort of work from the back to the front a little bit, think about where your receiver depth is going to come. And this is a format where you can start four, as we talked about right away. I think even more than ever, I want to be making sure to get four or five or six in those first five or six rounds. And we talk a lot about one of the objectives of zero RB is to get six of the top 15 overall receivers. You're going to have to be fairly wide receiver heavy to do that. One of the other things that's kind of fun about getting back to pure redraft is that you can push zero running back a little bit further. If you played with our roster construction explorers for FFPC, uh, for some other formats for underdog, you definitely will get results that show to you that zero RB or some types of modified zero RB approaches are going to be dominant ways to play it, but you do have to be aware about pushing it too far and not drafting enough running backs in pure redraft. You can go a little bit further with that because you can churn the back end of it. And that kind of brings us to another point about the times of the year that you're drafting, because I think that you do want to be aware of the kind of strengths and weaknesses of different times and how that will influence structure at least a little bit right now. You're going to get some prices, I think, especially on young players, but also on injured players, also on players who haven't signed, where there's room for those guys to really scream up the draft board, although especially on injured guys or, you know, someone like oh, Julio Jones never signs. Obviously, he will at some point fall off entirely. But you are wanting to get these extreme values. At the same time, we have a little bit less of a sense of how to use your picks in that 16 to 20 range on running backs. We just haven't had those running back depth charts shake out. And so while we definitely recommend going after players who are both probably talented based on sort of what they did in college, what their uh, athletic background is, you know, what they've done in small windows at the NFL level. And then if they're generating some buzz you know like an Eno benjamin for example who has risen you know he looked like maybe he would be completely and totally done after the williams signing but then ha has fought his way back into that group with good practices in offseason activities we want to be targeting those players and yet we know we're probably going to be better at grabbing them in late august this can work both ways number one you just want to be aware that you're probably going to have even more misses on your late round running backs than you would right before the season but also they're going to be guys who go completely undrafted that now you can actually kind of think in terms of feathering into your roster as well. You have that 700, 800 bid in week one. And again, that's going to depend on sort of what your risk profile is for those early bids, how you like to use that. Do you like to spend your free agent budget right away to get that big impact player? Those types of things, Ben, as you mentioned, kind of looking from the back to the front is very important at this time of the year and filling out your approach that way. I like what you said about getting the wide receivers early. It is interesting that we have kind of these pockets in eight, nine and 10, 11 Jarvis Landry goes off as wide receiver 58. I think he's probably the end of draftable wide receivers for that impact right ahead of him. Jahan Dotson, who had some red flags as a prospect is going into a bad situation in terms of quarterback play probably is the number two to Terry McLaurin. But what if he's not? 
right? I mean, what if we're wrong about this offense? I mean, he could be someone who is interesting. And again, you look at his draft slot, he and Garrett Wilson are two guys you can get well below what the NFL has told us that they think about him. So we have some pockets really through round 12 there that are interesting. And that gives us some flexibility early on. Do we have a dead zone here? We have Nick Chubb at running back 13 to start off round three. We have Tony Pollard going at the beginning of round seven. We have Nick Chubb as running back 13 at the beginning of round three. We have Kareem Hunt as running back 31 at the end of round seven. Do you like this group at all? Is it pure wide receiver there? If we have some targets in the dead zone, then we could do a little bit different types of things early. But this, at first glance, looks like an area to stay away from. Yeah, it's a tricky one from a dead zone perspective. We, again, I've had to think through some of this in my other, my my only main event that I've, I've mentioned in that sixth, seventh round, uh, where we were a little unsure about the wide receivers, we're staring at a falling Antonio Gibson and a falling Elijah Mitchell. And I think both of those picks, when you haven't made a running back pick yet, uh, at least a half a round behind ADP, could have made sense to some. I had a really hard time with both because to me, they look like traditional dead zone backs. Uh, I've said a lot of times that young players tend to be the ones that that elevate out of the dead zone, but it tends to be players that we haven't seen what they are yet. And maybe we haven't quite seen the ceiling for a Gibson or a Mitchell, but it, it does feel quite a bit like we already saw that and drafters aren't buying into it, right? And then so there's this wisdom of the crowds element that I always reference when we talk about the dead zone that – when you have a player like Gibson who had a good rookie year and was going at the one, two turn last year, had a decent enough year last year, a little bit worse. And people are saying, okay, or or the market is saying, okay, I don't don't want to take him until the late fifth round. That is a pretty good indicator. As much as I like his profile and and was in on Antonio Gibson a little bit last year, that's a player who typically – to draft him, it's a pretty big I know better to the long-term trends. It's a pretty big decision that, look, these types of guys almost never have legit upside. Maybe they can be small wins, but this is not typically where an elite running back comes from. The market's evaluation of this player is what it is, and there's a reason for it. And that you know you can make any case you want about Gibson, but that's kind of where I stop at that point. Obviously, for Gibson, you know, it's J.D. McKissick is back. It's They drafted Brian Robinson. It's Carson Wentz is their quarterback, and this offense might not score a lot of points. Elijah Mitchell, somewhat similarly, had a very, very strong year last year. His situation actually arguably got better. They did bring in another running back with Tyrion Davis-Price, but they might be even more run-heavy with Trey Lance expected to start. Raheem Mostert is not back. And yet, again, drafters are seeing something in this situation, the lack of receiving. You know, the probable lack of red zone touches. I think that's a real issue for him where Lance could be used as a runner a decent amount in close. And then probably somebody like Terry Davis-Price or Jeff Wilson is is their, their main goal line back. The Niners have used different backs there before. And, and again, these are things that the, the market is aware of. This is what ADP is telling us. 
that even if Elijah Mitchell goes out and has another really strong rushing season, runs for 1,200 yards, the TDs probably aren't going to be there. The receiving is probably not going to be there. He doesn't really have first-round type upside. And so those are the types of guys that on first glance appeal to me. I like both of them as talents. I have both of them on, on various dynasty leagues. I, I want to hope that they can be very good NFL players. They're still young. But we've sort of already seen what the good outcome for this year would look like in their past production, and yet people still aren't drafting. They're pushing them into the dead zone. And that, to me, is what I see in the long-term trends of the dead zone in terms of that's the type of player to stay away from. Even more obvious answers to that question are Josh Jacobs, are Miles Sanders, <clears throat> David Montgomery. I look at guys like A.J. Dillon, J.K. Dobbins differently because we maybe have not seen what the real ceiling is. A.J. Dillon is actually kind of getting pushed up into the dead zone, I think, from you know where he was going last year and maybe what's reasonable because he has a teammate that's even higher. Maybe that's foretelling you know some un unknowable upside maybe you know Aaron Jones having an injury or you know a, a different role a receiving role it could lead to AJ Dillon having just a monster rushing role I mean we know these sort of like backstories on what these players might be but certainly Dillon's one that I look at and say okay the scenario could be different from what we've seen that he's not a target for me at this price he's not a guy I've taken a lot of but I, I, I don't see him in the same bucket as Gibson or Mitchell as sort of these traditional dead zone backs, the ones that, that scare me the most. Um, J.K. Dobbins, uh, you know, I, I know you were really in on him. I, he's just an obvious one. He didn't play a ton as a rookie. He played more down the stretch. We never saw him play as the full lead back, and then he got hurt in year two. And so if he's healthy and he's a full lead back this year, it's sort of like the first opportunity we would get to see, you know, uh, a potentially unleashed Dobbins and what he could really be. It's sort of similar to Javante Williams going into year two, but Javante Williams is going in the second round. It's sort of similar to ETN going into year two, who missed all of last year, but ETN's going in the third. So drafters aren't buying into Dobbins either, and maybe there is some concern there. Maybe there is some wisdom of the crowds that we should consider, but I'm at least open to a guy like Dobbins because I don't think we've seen what the real ceiling could be. And, and, and contrast him to Cam Akers, who's going right before him. Akers, we sort of saw flashes of that. I guess I'm more concerned about Acres. Maybe I'm I'm putting a little bias in there, but that's how I kind of play through the the specific names, I guess, in this dead zone. It's an interesting group this year, but there are a few that I, I look at and say this I I would almost be more comfortable drafting these guys if drafters were taking them in the third round. <laughs> that's an interesting way to look at it. I one of the things that jumps out for me following on very much the logic that you just discussed there is that they're in this round three to round seven range. There are nine guys who to me would be pure veterans. We also have four backs who I think we really don't know what they are. You mentioned ETN, Brees Hall, Dobbins, and Ken Walker. You probably throw acres in there as well for sort of a fifth back. Those players all very interesting. And I think that if you want to take a smart structural approach or you want to use the insights that we've accumulated through you know the course of the last decade and put those all together but then flip them on their head a little bit and you want to do something that's both smart but unique something that a lot of the other drafters who you know maybe listen to stealing bananas at ot and ship chasing 
people who read Rotoviz, people who read ceiling signals. And you're thinking, I mean, these are the drafters that I'm competing with. These are the drafters that are in many cases now setting ADP. I think that you can target those backs and target a couple of those backs, at least on some of your teams and build out sort of a reverse lineup from what we always talk about by hitting those players before they rise too much. Now, ETN has already gotten into this situation where previously he was a, a fantastic option. Now, much more borderline. When you look at these veterans and you try and decide if any of them should ever be on your roster, one of the things that you can do is pull up the range of outcomes tool. And I mentioned that specifically because all the different tools do different things and they come at you from different angles that will give you an insight into one area and maybe aren't as good for something else. And you want to be aware of what they're good at and what they're not as good at. Obviously the range of outcomes tool, which is looking at past seasons and is giving you historical matches, how those players fared, it's going to be more accurate for players who number one are established and number two, maybe aren't going to have this huge change in terms of what their situation is for 2022. When you look through those guys, unless there is a veteran who pops out as having a range of outcomes that is dramatically mispriced based on where they are in the dead zone, then they should be completely off your board. And one of the things that you're going to find is, yeah, I mean, basically these guys should be completely off your board. So we want to avoid them. And, and then we also have a few interesting, almost you know, part-time types of players who are in there in terms of Clyde Edwards-Alaire and Tony Pollard. Where if the first thing that jumps out to you in your mind is that, okay, this guy would be a great zero RB candidate in round 11, that's a problem when they're going in round six and round seven for you. So that can also give you a sense because having the ability to beat ADP to outperform the price, that's crucial to actually liking the profile in the first place. The, the price element of it is so important there. And I think that on a few of these guys who are athletic, are explosive and we like what they can do the the pricing reflects that but it's just very very out of whack in terms of what the scenarios would be that you could get the workload to outperform it so although ben you and i talk all the time about fading workload at least to an extent fading the week one workload focusing on talent you still have to then find actual targets who fit in the price range that will work with the whole idea that got you to that in the first place yeah and it as I was talking through, you know, a lot of those backs, I'm, I'm definitely trying to be aware that drafters are adjusting and everything is relative to the current market. I guess full stop, right? To the current market prices, to the current market analysis. It's entirely possible. I mean, like for a guy like an Elijah Mitchell, it's entirely possible that at a point he becomes sort of a can't miss value because drafters are almost identifying him as a dead zone value and pushing him down too far. But that point wasn't there for me, I guess, in the late six when you talk, because it's always about price. It's also always about opportunity cost. What are you missing? And not just what are you missing in that round, but game out the next three rounds, right? What, what does that do for where you're going to wind up with your receiver core by the end of the 10th? And are you going to be happy that you took that running back or was that sort of a capitulation just thinking that, okay, this is the ADP value because structurally we still want to be as sound as possible. And when we are making detours off of the chief goals that we're trying to accomplish, which is essentially take as many receivers early as you can take as many running backs late as you can. When we're, when we're detouring off of that, it has to be for a scenario where we're saying this player can be 
a game breaker at that other position, right? And so that can be justifiable with the early tight ends. We know that they can be such a massive advantage structurally. That can be a scenario now in the current landscape with the early quarterbacks as well, because the mix of you know pass first offenses and rushing equity that they bring, they've differentiated in the last few years in the way that they didn't five years ago. And so that's changed things a little bit, especially when you again start thinking about opportunity costs at the various picks and what you might be foregoing at wide receiver in that round versus what you might be able to get at wide receiver in the round where you might otherwise take your quarterback, whatever that may be. That doesn't mean you can't still go very late quarterback or you can't still basically take any structure. It is thinking through multiple picks ahead. It's thinking back to front in your draft and questioning what does this leave me at and am I accomplishing sort of the goals that I set out to in terms of the depth at receiver, the upside at running back, you know, the difference making firepower at quarterback and tight end. I mean, I think those are sort of ways that I might describe that very quickly. But I one thing I wanted to ask you, Sean, because I've seen this idea floated on Twitter a bit, is that this is an interesting year for some early running back starts. I think some of this conversation started with Saquon still going around the 2-3 turn. We do still see Javante there. We've talked a little bit about Nick Chubb when he falls being interesting. I'm not sure I love him at the 2-3 turn, but ETN is sitting there. If you do get a Taylor or McCaffrey very early, say you could start McCaffrey, Javante, ETN. I mean, those are players I like. The tricky thing is I look at ADP. I think I could get two pretty good receivers at the 4-5 turn. The 6-7 turn would really concern me. I mean, that's the pocket that I've been talking about with the other main event. But maybe the 8-9 turn still holds some upside. I've I've named some of the rookies you could take swings on. Brandon Ayuk's another name sitting there that I haven't mentioned yet. But then you're also dealing with, okay, I didn't get an elite tight end on this build, right? And I I didn't – maybe you're hitting a QB in that 6-7 window. But I don't have the receiver depth that I, nest, that I that I want. I mean, I think you can still build a pretty good receiver group. Have you considered? I mean, obviously you've considered. But what 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 is your uh, interest or willingness to consider some running back heavy drafts this year? I, I guess particularly as it relates to the wide receiver pocket of the the upside rookies that we're getting right now in the ninth and the tenth round. And this is another dynamic, I think, where this early look is important because I do expect some of these things to change. One of the things that was a big emphasis even earlier in the summer, in half PPR formats, you were getting some crazy prices on hyper-fragile types of builds where even for someone like me who has spent the last 15 years trying to uh, win with zero RB, but also then you know explain some of the reasons why that works and why the wide receiver in almost all cases gives you more upside and less risk at the important points throughout the draft. It just the running backs were clearly the better buy, and I think that if a draft gives you that, then you should take it. I mean, you never want to get yourself locked into a situation where you don't have flexibility mentally and where something that is a a good idea and a dominant approach becomes not that due to pricing. And then instead of it being a dominant idea for you, it just becomes a dogma and then you're doing things the wrong way. The early results that we see here, I don't know that is necessarily giving us that, 
but it's not completely out of the question. And one of the problems is that after those big three at wide receiver, I don't know that you're necessarily getting the type of wide receiver production that is a must have early. Now it's not to say that it's not going to help you. And one of the things that you mentioned there that is so important is that if you go with that hyper fragile approach or you start RB times three, you're going to miss out on the tight ends and you're going to really regret that as you go through the rest of your bill, because then you're going to be forced later to make some suboptimal choices as you reach to make sure you hit your tight end as opposed to missing them. And you're going to feel that pressure to then address the position with more bodies. Again, something that has these sort of carryover effects that, that hurt you as you're drafting. It can cause some of the same issues at QB because if you go running back early, then you have to go so wide receiver heavy that your draft in the 10, 11, 12, 13 range becomes much more of a focus on QB and getting a couple that you compare to where that pairing then gives you the firepower to compete with other drafters who took a, a QB early when they hit a flat spot. So you're going to hit a flat spot and still feel that pressure to draft a wide receiver because of your start, whereas someone else who's wide receiver heavy is going to hit that flat spot. They're going to land one of the elite quarterbacks, and then they're going to have flexibility throughout the draft. And so those are the things that I think that we want to make sure that we're just really working this both back to front and front to back in terms of what are the consequences of loading up on, in some ways, upside, but also landmines. We talk a lot about diversifying and hitting these running backs across leagues as opposed to loading up and trying to get all of that value within a league for this reason. It's not just that you have then put all this additional risk onto your team, but it does have some fairly serious consequences as you go through the draft. It hurts you at QB. It hurts you at tight end. And not just in terms of who you lose, but also the flexibility to take values because you become more locked into a very kind of stratified draft approach as you get deeper, which isn't to say that I wouldn't ever do some teams like this because anybody who has gone out and taken a couple of running backs to start and then known that they were going to go wide receiver the rest of the way and then has taken eight consecutive wide receivers, if you have a couple of late tight ends, if you have a couple of those QBs that you like to go with, it's going to give you a team that does some things that a lot of other builds will not. I and mean, one of the things that we do see is that it is possible to build a running back, running back team that accomplishes a lot of our objectives. But drafters who are kind of more inclined to do that tend not to start running back, running back. And then the drafters who do start running back, running back, make some pretty serious mistakes as they go through the rest of their draft. Yeah. I mean, I think if I was going running back, running back, or even running back, running back, running back, as I suggested, it would include a lot of receivers over through the 12th round essentially. And it would really only be at a point where I felt that I could still get receiver values into the 12th round, which was, I, I think we are at that point. You mentioned earlier in the show, this idea that Jarvis Landry is sort of the, the last draftable receiver. I mean, Jacoby Myers is going three receivers after him. So we're, we're good there, but um, there's a, <laughs> a couple other um, late, you know, late upside swings as well. We're always going to be in the KJ Hamler bucket. And, and right now you, I mean, you can just hope and wish on guys like Will, Will Fuller and Julio Jones late in drafts as well that might be able to fix some of this, but it would be a lot of receivers. I think for me, you talked about taking eight straight. I think I would still take an elite quarterback in that six, seven range and then only have to try to figure out tight end because that's one of the biggest things that I can do for you is you're already going to be thin at receiver to try to gain, 
make up the receiver points and also not have firepower at quarterback and tight end is really tough. I mean, you're going to have to hit on some late stars in both of those positions because, I mean, otherwise you're just you're banking on the running backs being so good and so healthy that they're going to dominate. But and we know running backs score a lot of points. I mean, we've never we've never argued that that point, but it is tough when you think about the four positions and how it all comes together. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all in one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Another thing you mentioned earlier is this idea of, you know, drafting early, drafting late. And you talked through how we understand the running back bets better later, the zero RB bets. But I also think it's interesting when we think back to last year, how you and I were still crystallizing our opinions on some of the early running backs. I mean, there are guys that are – it's interesting to to get the rest of the information into August and, and to actually feel a little bit more comfortable. We felt comfortable enough in Najee Harris late to take him. Uh, Austin Eckler's a guy that we were a little back and forth on, but I think he wound up six – six at running back in my final rankings, which he had been lower. And I think some people had him that high all along. Um, one of the guys that had ahead of him was Jonathan Taylor, who was going a lot later and we were on him all along, but six was pretty high last year. There was kind of a clear top three and I had Taylor and Saquon as the four or five. That's another, you know, we, we made the bets on, on Taylor and Saquon kind of all throughout draft season, but Eckler was a guy we moved up. Harris was a guy we moved up. Those ended up being pretty positive decisions in terms of crystallizing that next tier of running back last year that stretched all the way through the second round, it felt like. I think it goes both ways. I think we think about it a lot with the zero RB guys, but especially now in sort of more the more modern NFL, we have some really pass-heavy offenses. There's some things that we learn in August that are going to help us better understand this RB3 to RB20 grouping, you know, RB15. And so where I'm going with this is in these early drafts, and with my, mine with Pat and Pete, we went pretty zero RB heavy. We wound up taking Devin Singletary at a, a, about 10 picks slide in the late eighth round, which was a really nice benefit to that zero RB build to get Singletary. He's a guy that we like. Obviously, you, I think, are, are driving the, the Devin Singletary bandwagon, but we definitely like him here on Stealing Bananas. 
but that wasn't necessarily our plan. We kind of expected him to go when we were probably going to go, you know, or potentially going to continue to go receiver, receiver in the eighth and the ninth round, continue to build out that receiver court, continue to press the advantage we felt we already had, even into, you know, that later pocket that I was talking about. But if we had done that, one of the things we were already talking about and planning for was that maybe we'd be done with seven receivers or eight receivers through the first, you know, 10 or 12 rounds. So that from basically round 13 on, we could just load up our team with interesting running backs that we think have the potential to be the guys that by the end of August, we're all really liking as the zero RB targets, if I'm saying that well enough. And there's also the possibility of sort of the Cam Akers, Daryl Henderson situation last year, right? Where if there is a major injury, a guy like Daryl Henderson can rise from that round 12, round 13 ADP into the fifth round of drafts or third round in some drafts late. And so I actually think zero RB is a really fun strategy now in the sense that people are willing to be pretty heavy on these running backs right now because there's only a few that they trust. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing drive some of the, the ADP through the first three rounds that we were talking about you can get a lot of wide receiver firepower early as a result. You don't want to try to fix that problem to the extent that that's a problem, not having any running backs in the dead zone. So you just keep hitting the receivers. Cause I mean, that's like the, the cardinal sin I think in fantasy drafts is trying to fix a problem when the opportunity doesn't present itself, taking a running back in the running back dead zone. Cause you don't have a running back yet pulling out of a zero RB build when that's not the place to take a running back. We'd rather have you take one in the first round. So instead of trying to fix that, continue to hammer receiver, get so strong at receiver through the area where receivers are worth drafting, basically, that then you've opened the window to just be completely hammering running backs the rest of the way, taking sort of a shotgun approach, hoping that you hit a couple that you're willing to start week one, and then being ready to make that big week one bid that you talked about earlier in the show. But also potentially being well, you know, I mean, being understanding that you're baking in some guys that you're going to cut by the end of August, right? So you're taking some pretty big swings. Potentially, you're taking multiple players from the same unsettled backfields where you think one might rise. Give yourself as many bullets in that chamber. I think at running back, it, it can be a fun way to do zero RB right now. It can, and one of the things that you see with the shift into a redraft mindset is that you can cut a lot of these guys without huge consequences which you can't do in a best ball league obviously and it's one of the reasons why those wide receivers who look like they have starting or you know top three roles are very hard to pass on in a best ball format we were thinking okay well this this person is not going to be completely gone he's not going to be completely off of the radar those types of players in redraft are almost useless to you and so from that perspective, if you draft and miss, it's not going to be, it just simply doesn't have the same consequences. And that doesn't mean that if you hit, it's not a benefit. So you're still going to be losing out to drafters who are hitting on their picks in those ranges. Now, one of the things that does happen is that we tend to be overconfident about how often and how many of those picks are going to hit. So you want to have that portion of it calibrated. One of the things I do like to go through and look at from my teams, and this includes in many cases, the most successful teams. You look at the teams that have won main events, the teams that have finished in the top 50 of national contests, how many players outside the first 10 rounds and maybe outside a quarterback because some of those quarterbacks obviously would contribute, but outside of the top 10 rounds are actually still on your roster at the end of the season. You'll be shocked at how small that number is. And so if we're making contingent bets 
in the double digit rounds. I think that part works. The other element here that where you do have a little bit of a, a zero RB edge now that you possibly won't is you, when you look at those players who are being drafted between rounds 10 and 13 at running back. The first thing that jumps out of me when I see this ADP is the Devin Singletary I love, but I would love to get even better prices. I mean, one of the things is that drafters have always been so skeptical about him that he goes three or four rounds below where he should go. It's nice that he's kind of a borderline dead zone back as opposed to a, a clear dead zone back, but I would like to see him even later. You look at Rashad Penny there in round eight. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the most talented backs in NFL and possibly the starter. And yet if you've had a back drafted on top of you into that type of offense, I mean, you don't want to see that name in the eighth round. I mean, you're thinking that's more 10, 11, 12, right? And that you know, even the difference between eight and 10, I mean, it makes a big difference in terms of how we're constructing our teams. But these backs who are 10 to 13, some of those guys are going to rise and jump into the Devin Singletary, Rashad Penny range. The number, the name that, you know, I'm probably wrong about because I've been pretty consistently wrong about him or you know, certainly wrong about it last year, at least. Ronald Jones. Ronald Jones seems like <laughs> someone who is going to jump into that area. And if you can get him in round 10 as opposed to round eight, that's a big deal. You want to get him now. Daryl Henderson has had a weird ADP actually after. You know, he played pretty well last season. Michael Carter has something of a weird ADP because he played fairly well last season, and we expect that backfield to be somewhat split. You know, sometimes it's you, you almost don't think about the young guys or the players who haven't already suffered an injury at the NFL level. You don't think about them getting hurt, but the young guys do get hurt. And so, I mean, Brees Hall has some some trouble. I mean, you're looking at at Michael Carter being right there. So many of the names in 10 through 13 as we get a little bit more insight on them, you're just not going to get as good a value. So you want to get them now as opposed to later. I think there are players who are right now kind of in that 21 to 24 range, which obviously is, is not actually drafted. Those guys are going to jump into the seven through 20 range later, and you're going to feel really good about getting them. Whereas right now, you know, you see names like, you know, Snoop Connor and Matt Breida and Keontae Ingram and, those names are not going to be particularly appealing to you late. So I think that you have to understand kind of the way the ADP is going to move and make sure you're loading your roster up with guys who, not that they're going to get more expensive, but they could get more expensive. If they could get more expensive and you miss, then you lose out really on a lot of ADP value. I agree with everything you just said, except I have to throw in uh, a note on Matt Breida, which is that the, the, the New York Giants running back depth chart is hilarious. <laughs> it's basically just Saquon and Matt Breida. I mean, I think Gary Brightwell is their third running back. I just said the projection. I, I can't figure out who else is going to play behind Saquon. So I actually think Breida is kind of an interesting pure handcuff behind Saquon at this point, as cheap as he is. But I, I love that list of names you just said. There's several other running backs going in that 10 to 13 range that you didn't even mention that fit right in there. We've talked a lot about Kenneth Gainwell, Rashad White, Isaiah Spiller, Tyrion Davis-Price, Tyler Algier, James Robinson, it's a whole group of rookies that their prices might rise between now and then. I mean, you can even throw Damian Pierce in there. I guess he's going 9-12. Um, not a guy that we love, but th there's a lot of scenarios where I would say there's a, a very likely scenario where at least one or two of those running backs is going quite a bit higher, at least into that eighth round range, like you said. Well, Pierce, even though we're not exactly on him, could jump four rounds. <laughs> it right. would be very easy to see that. Yeah, so there's a lot of guys – in that range, uh, you, you get further on, there are a lot of 
pass catching backs that are worth targeting, I think. I mean, you have, you know, the Naheem Hines tier and, and Kenny Gainwell probably fits into that group. You have JD McKissick coming up. I, I still am holding out a candle for James White, or if it's Ty Montgomery, who they signed to I've mentioned before, and I, I can't get anyone to comment on this. So I'm definitely just on a limb, but they gave him a two year, $3.6 million deal with 300,000 guaranteed guys never made more than 1.12 million in a year. He's 30. He didn't do much last year. They gave him way more money than anyone should have gave him to make sure he'd come in. Guaranteed him 300000 I think he's their James White insurance if James White's not the guy who he's going in the 18th. And you can take both James White and Ty Montgomery because Ty Montgomery's probably never been drafted. One of those guys is going to be the pass catcher for the Patriots. Ben is setting up to use like seven, 700 of his 1,000 fab on Ty Montgomery. No, I'm just going to draft things. him in the 20th round now. And then when he's Cordero Patterson from last year... I'll be the one laughing, Sean. <laughs> I'm setting up to use all my money on Pierre Strong. We'll see how that goes. Different roles. They can be the two main backs for the Patriots. Pierre Strong, Ty Montgomery, Patriots backfield 2022. Put it on a t-shirt. That means that in 2024, <laughs> he's going to give you a lot of fantasy points. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, that'll do it for this episode of Ceiling Minutes. We're going to come back to you later in the week and do the second half. And one of the things, Ben, that we will talk about sort of navigating these early rounds, looking at some specific names and how there is uh, such a kind of crazy dynamic early on where your draft slot is going to determine a lot of what you do structurally and tactically, not only in the early rounds, but then as we discussed today, that's going to define so much of what you do late. So we'll put together some teams. We'll try and navigate uh, these tricky flat areas. Come back for the second half of this show. I'm Sean Siegel with me is Ben Gretsch, whom you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Signals. You don't want to miss the next edition. He had a fantastic one out this week about A.J. Brown. That part won't surprise you, but also targets per route run and how to evaluate fantasy players that's the kind of thing that you don't want to miss sign up for stealing signals join us over at rotoviz as well you can get a 10 percent discount by using the coupon code rv radio 2022 at checkout subscribe to the feed leave us a rating and review love to hear from you guys talk to you soon